And I think what, what's coming to the forefront more and more too is actually social inequities. We're seeing this in COVID-19. We see it after hurricanes and flooding. Communities of color, communities of lower socioeconomic status are disproportionately affected by the disaster and have a harder time recovering. And the programs designed to sort of level the playing field and help those um, tend to favor wealthier and wider communities. Uh, we need to understand that. We need to understand these dynamics and we need to um, begin to accept that maybe our current paradigm of consequence management is not actually going to be sufficient to the 21st century disasters that we're facing. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I have as my guest today on the podcast, Jeff Schlegelmilch, who is the director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, the Columbia University Earth Institute where he oversees the operations, strategic planning, and projects related to the practice and policy of disaster preparedness, including the multi-award winning Resilient Children, Resilient Communities Initiative. Uh, he's also a lecturer at the Sustainable Sustainability Management Program at Columbia's School of Professional Studies. He is the author of the book, Rethinking Readiness, a brief guide to the 21st century mega disasters, which I have read and highly recommend. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Great to, uh, great to reconnect. So I'd like to mention that I had the honor of speaking to your group at the NCDP a few weeks ago for the Lunch and Learn, and it's a great pleasure to continue our conversation today. So I'd like to begin our conversation where we left off, which is given the range of the programs and projects that NCDP manages, what would you consider to be the key project management competencies that are required to effectively develop and manage them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really great question. And, you know, we were uh, pontificating a while back around, uh, you know, what uh, some uh, a design of a master's degree program in disaster management. And uh, I talked to the staff and, and asked them, you know, what is it you wish you knew? And uh, coming into the field and, and a lot of them remarked, you know, so much of what we do is project management, but you don't get trained for that in the academic setting. Um, and, you know, that's such a huge part, right, because ultimately where we are at the intersection of research policy and practices, we're trying to take the best available research and translate that into solutions for today's problems. But to do that, we need to understand the problems and the information requirements of those who are responding, of the industries, of the government agencies, of the people who are doing it. And we also need to uh, manage towards those end products, toward those outputs. And that's a little bit of a square peg in a round hole in academia that sort of follows the data and does research. And, and again, it, it, a very important process for the, for the purposes of discovery. Um, but then when you sort of have an end state that's sort of predefined, uh, you have to kind of bring in some of these more traditional project management. So we bring in a lot of great folks at various levels. We have uh, folks from with a research background, folks with background in industry. And, and really, I think that the short answer after my long-winded answer to your question is we really leverage the, the diversity of experience of people in the center and really make a conscious effort to recruit folks of, uh, of different um, professional backgrounds uh, to be able to you know bring in different skill sets be they research be they project management be they policy etc cetera, etc cetera. so on that note 
I'm sure that you've encountered some challenges along the way. What would you? What, what are the main challenges in pro program and project management, and how have you handled them? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that with disaster management is that it's inherently chaotic. Um, I mean that more in terms of like uh, chaos theory in terms of, um, although maybe the more traditional definition of chaotic is, is appropriate as well too. You have a lot of different actors from a lot of different walks of life coming together. Uh, we may be funded by a foundation and have a lot of free reign of what we do, which can be very liberating, but at the same time, very challenging because we have to define what are those endpoints or work with our partners to help them define how we can best leverage the research to help help out. Um, at other times, we may be working with one agency, but they work in an ecosystem of other agencies. And so we're sort of entering into the politics of the situation on behalf of just one of those actors. And how do you navigate that? How do you ensure that you're providing validity to the other perspectives that are in the room while still being true to um, uh, to the requirements and to the contract and to the folks who paid you to be there um, towards the greater good, but also towards that, that direct sort of promise and, and relationship. Uh, and, you know, we were fortunate to work with great partners, uh, great funders and, and great people in the center who are very, but it requires a level of, of flexibility and fluidity that can be, um, uh, make you anxious at times. <laughs> it can make you feel unsettled. Um, but uh, but we always uh, seem to manage to uh, to get through by by the grace of working with good people. So I want to delve into what you know in the realm of project management is is what we would call quality management. And in terms of programs and projects and in your domain, that's sort of measuring the impacts. So how do you measure the impacts of your uh, of your programs? And then to that, what are the constraints on what you can and cannot measure? Yeah, so, you know, recently did a project actually looking at performance measures for public health preparedness and a um, one of the challenges we're drawing from a lot of the, the QA, QC, quality assurance, quality control science, which comes from industry, which will come from an assembly line where you have a repeated process that happens, you know, a thousand times a day or a hundred times a day. And we're dealing with, uh, well, right now, uh, measures for a pandemic, a uh, once in a hundred, well, I, I should be careful using these once in a hundred years as the world is changing. These may be more frequent occurrences, but the fact is, is that they're not even close to that level of repetitiveness and they're much more complex. The, the, the dynamics that are occurring and much more unique to each disaster. So right out of the gate, you sort of have this challenge where you can, we can set guardrails. It's like bumpers. When you go bumper bowling, we can kind of set those up, um, but we can't necessarily guide it right down the middle because the, the, the field just isn't there yet. Um, in terms of the impact of what we do, depending on the project, if it's more policy oriented, we may see it in terms of, you know, how, how far we get in terms of um, the recommendations or, or the findings from our work being implemented in, in policy or in the interpretation of policy for the creation of programs. Um, there's a lot of uh, measures we can do to take a look at how many people in the community we're reaching, both directly and through the organizations we work with, as well as we have uh, an index we use on, on the Resilient Children, Resilient Communities Initiative. We developed with Save the Children, the Community Preparedness Index, actually a measure of a community's uh, resilience to disasters with a focus on children. I should be careful that all of these measures 
provide some information, but they all have blind spots and biases and things like that. Uh, so I think whether we're doing it overtly or not, we're always trying to take a balanced approach as well, too, to recognize, well, here are the numbers we have, here are the ones we don't have, and, and anecdotal information, testimonials can be very important in helping to illustrate value where we don't necessarily have the equations yet to be able to quantify it. So in, in, in your experience with the various programs and projects that you've been involved with at the center, what are the major programmatic lessons that have been learned from the work with different communities that you've served? You know, I, I did my undergraduate degree in theater studies, and I remember a lesson from theater being that, you know, you can't blame an audience if they don't get what you're trying to say on stage, right? You have to, it's up to you to communicate and they may get it, they may not get it, they may internalize it very differently than what you intended. And sometimes that's fine. But, but at the end of the day, what you have control over is your presentation. Um, and you can't set up an adversarial relationship with the audience. Uh, I've carried that with me a lot with disaster management and working with agencies. You know, we um, can very easily set up uh, the borders of our Petri dish for our research inquiries um, to be very contained and very controlled, but there's a messiness of the real world uh, that involves politics. And there's also a place where science ends and uh, values begin. Uh, we can talk about the consequences of a decision. We can't necessarily tell you um, what's best for the community. That's a community decision. We can just provide fidelity to um, some of those forecasts, some of those consequence uh, analyses. And, um, you know, uh, COVID-19 is an example, right? You know, for some um, very collective uh, cultures, uh, it, it's a very strong value to make sacrifices for the greater good in more individualistic societies. Uh, it's not. Giving up a right is a very fundamental, very profound thing, even if it is for the greater good. Um, so we're not completely agnostic. There are lines, right? <laughs> but um, but I, I think that um, navigating that, navigating the real world, navigating the messiness of it, and integrating that into the way that we provide solutions and the way that we talk about solutions is something that um, is really an effort to, to embrace the uncertainty, but also not be paralyzed by it, to continue forward movement and to continue to create options for, for how we build resilience uh, within our nation and, and with our partners and communities. So I, I want to turn to your book, because I, I think that it's uh, particularly prescient given the current circumstances. I, I think, I, I, hopefully I don't sound too facetious, but I think we're only missing a few disasters that are in the book at this point. Uh, I, I think all, uh, most of these things are, are, are occurring right now in the United States in some way, shape, or form, but short of, short of nuclear war, hopefully. So in your book, Rethinking Readiness, you write that we need to meaningfully engage communities to increase collective resilience and that the challenges are, in some cases, beyond the scope of any one community. So just to, for, for our listening audience, we see this in the wildfires that are happening out west, hurricanes in the East Coast currently. And at this point, when we're recording the podcast globally with the pandemic. However, we also need to acknowledge examples such as the 311 disaster in Japan, that a one size fits all approach from a national government can be at times ill suited to the local needs. What types of programs do you see that would balance attention for local needs while involving different levels of government at the state and federal level in the US? 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's really sort of a, a recurring theme, and it's something that at a high level everyone seems to agree with. We need to engage communities, but at an operational level, um, never quite makes it into the budget lines uh, or the uh, uh, milestone timeframes to actually accommodate that. Um, so, so first, I'll, I'll kind of give two extreme examples. One is, um, you know, in, in early like post-Sandian discussions on how to protect New York City from rising sea levels, I'm, I'm told I wasn't in these discussions, you know, that there were some initial brainstorming ideas, you know, I'm not criticizing anyone for these massive flood walls around, you know, New York City. Uh, what would that cost? But then, of course, what would that mean? Well, it pushes all that water over into New Jersey, right? Uh, and so obviously a, a, a local solution that protects local interests can have devastating consequences to nearby areas um, that, uh, <laughs> that bear the brunt of that, that redirection. Um, so, um, but then at the other extreme, you know, when we talk about the cost benefit of managed retreat from climate change and flooding, uh, there's this town in North Carolina, Princeville, which was the first uh, uh, community founded by African-Americans and was founded by African-American slaves after the end of the Civil War. And, and it, it's constantly being flooded out by hurricanes, uh, by Hurricane Floyd, by, I believe, Matthew and, and uh, um, Florence and so on. Uh, and so this is one of those things where it's like, you know, it's a very impoverished community. Um, there are a lot of challenges there. Uh, and the, you know, it could be very easy to say, look, it's just going to be cheaper to move everyone away. But it's the first community founded, you know, by, by freed African-American slaves after the Civil War. There is a social value. There is a, there is a spiritual importance to that that isn't e easily understood in economic terms. Um, and so I, I give these examples to say that, you know, the, um, and you mentioned the 311 disasters where, you know, the government of Japan was on a, on a kick to, to build seawalls when a lot of the communities didn't want that disruption to their fisheries and to their tourism industry. They would prefer to move further up the mountain rather than uh, have these walls obstructing things. So this is all to say is that, you know, a lot of times these are top-down decision-making processes. And by the time communities are brought in, the ideas are pre-baked and being presented. The goal is not to get community input. The goal is to get uh, enough community input to say that you've had community input to implement what you've, what you've already decided you're going to do. To involve communities, it means not, it means flying the communities out to the meetings at the UN, to the meetings at the Hyatt in, in New York City, uh, and, and budgeting for that. It means putting the time in for a multi-year process of community engagement before you have a project designed and pitched and promoted. We don't really have good systems for doing that. We don't really have the patience for doing that. Um, uh, donor cycles, election cycles, uh, reporting cycles tend not to, to favor that. But that kind of meaningful engagement, it, it, there is some top down. There are some things that only can be done regionally, but there is a lot of bottom up and there's a lot of solutions and ingenuity and needs and concerns at the community level that we just lose if we're always looking at it from the 30,000 foot elevation. So also in your book, you state more eloquently than I'm about to simplify that when it comes to disaster mitigation, preparedness and response that everybody owns part, nobody owns all. Can you describe the nature of the funding and response challenge? Yeah, so there's, uh, um, you know, all of these different aspects that come together in a disaster that contribute to the threat and the vulnerability. 
you know, we can look at, you know, emergency management as the consequence managers. They come in and, and you know, manage the consequences of economic policy, in some cases, educational policy, transportation policy, um, all of these different things, right? They own the consequences, but they don't actually own the um, decision making that goes into it. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that they should, but they should have input into it. Um, and vice versa, you know, economic development policy, you know, a big part is owned, you know, here, moving to uh, uh, whether we're talking about resilience and, and floodplain management and not developing in certain areas of a town, that has consequences on a local economy. If you have parcels of land that are undevelopable, that affects, you know, your ability to secure debt for additional development, your limits, your tax base, all of these different things. So, so we have these areas where we traditionally look at disasters, but that's really just one small piece. Um, and I think what, what's coming to the forefront more and more too is actually social inequities. We're seeing this in COVID-19. We see it after hurricanes and flooding. Communities of color, communities of lower socioeconomic status are disproportionately affected by the disaster and have a harder time recovering. And the programs designed to sort of level the playing field and help those um, tend to favor wealthier and wider communities. Uh, we need to understand that. We need to understand these dynamics and we need to um, begin to accept that maybe our current paradigm of consequence management is not actually going to be sufficient to the 21st century disasters that we're facing. So related to that, based on where we're at right now, which doesn't look like a pretty picture, uh, what do you see possibly emerging from the multiple disasters that we're dealing with in the U.S. concurrently? Well, I think, one, we're absolutely probably getting closer to a tipping point here where the, the um, disaster management systems sort of designed over the last few decades uh, are probably going to need a level of redesign and restructuring commensurate with what we saw post 9-11 and after uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, potentially of even greater magnitude. We're seeing a lot more engagement of the private sector I think uh, a lot of these theoretical things on um, that people sort of agreed in principle that you know resilience saves, um, and we've had some data from um, the FEMA Commission studies that one dollar saves six and some very specific mitigation programs. But now companies are actually seeing it very specific within their operations what that cost is, what the potential value is of resilience. So I think a silver lining here is we probably have more minds entering the field, um, more people, more analytical approaches, and we can use all the help we can get. Um, certainly the issues of equity and imbalances and disasters is more to the forefront. Whether that translates into action uh, remains to be seen. Um, and, and But finally, I think we're all getting more and more acclimated to uh, looking at the future with more uncertainty. Um, that the past is not prelude. Uh, it can give hints into the disasters that we are facing in the coming century. It can give examples, but the frequency, the duration, the impacts, the magnitudes. But I say all this, and before everyone gets super depressed and just decides to curl up under the blanket and cry themselves to sleep, I would say too that the engagement of all these sectors, the engagement of communities, that that I'm actually optimistic, <laughs> believe it or not. I think we have access to, to more ways of thinking, more analytical approaches, more information. And while right now we may seem to be stuck in the mud with certain issues with politics, issues with, with the stressors at hand, 
there's, I get to see firsthand the folks at the community level who are figuring out how to open schools, who are figuring out how to keep childcare going. I get to work with scholars who are saying, you know, I saw some things in this field that might be relevant. Let's air it out. Let's talk about it. Who aren't afraid to be wrong um, if it's in the pursuit of greater truth. And knowing that these folks are doing that work actually gives me a lot of hope that, um, that we do actually have a fighting chance against the challenges that we face. So one one more further question related to this, because I know in addition to the work you just mentioned, you're also doing work with, I believe, the power industry or power company, I believe, in the Midwest, if I remember correctly. And, you know, one of the concerns that I had going into the start of the pandemic and with, you know, knowing that hurricane season's coming, wildfires, you know, season doesn't quite end at this point. It just gets worse during the summertime. And so unfortunately, we've seen that that our critical infrastructure was going to be severely impacted and that uh, there would be some strain. And we've seen a little bit of that, but largely it looks like it's other than the power shutoffs out in California, which have been designed to prevent further fire from spreading, we've seen it hold up. Do, are you encouraged by what you see in terms of private sector in their attention to put in place redundancy mitigation measures and the like? Yeah, I, I mean, there's certainly, so I'll sort of answer this two ways. With some of the engagements that we have with the private sector, um, there's definitely people out there who are um, recognize this and looking for new solutions. The, the relationship you mentioned uh, with uh, Commonwealth Edison, we have a, a, an article in Research Counts through the Natural Hazard Center and a few more coming out related to some pandemic work. And so having to... Um, uh, so really looking at what is that interplay, you know, they have a lot of engineering expertise, what are the social dynamics of disasters that play into that, so there are people thinking about this. Um, at the broader level, sort of above and beyond any specific relationship we have, um, it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge across all industries where you have an incentive structure that doesn't always allow you the flexibility to do long-term investments, especially when there's a lack of precision in the data of what the payoff will be, um, partly due to the uncertainty on the horizon. And so, um, you know, uh, you know, again, I think with the pandemic, I think with the recent storms and wildfires, it's, it's really a wake-up call for a lot of folks. Um, but these are complex dynamics, you know, uh, as an example with utilities, right, they, they have their business decisions that they have to make internally. Uh, most utilities are sort of pseudo private quasi public entities, right. So they, they also uh, don't make these decisions on their own, they have to work with regulators at times legislators at times constituents, um, and ratepayers, of course, and so um, and, and I say too that this is a broader issue with all aspects of disasters where again in principle we can all agree preparedness saves um, but then when you're asking someone to make a sacrifice what is it for a greater value we we need to do a better job in academia of supporting um explaining to people what that value is in real terms and value in terms of where they're at um, not just sort of these these kind of loose uh, loose definitions. So so our work as well as other other groups working with the private sector, I think, is really essential for that. It's really essential to understand um, what the concerns are of these players, what the dynamics are, and what we bring to the table, and also what what they bring to the table in terms of their knowledge and analytic capabilities. So uh, it's another area. So again, I, I'm I'm biased. The folks we work with, I think, are are very uh, <laughs> forward thinking and I, I very much enjoy working with them. Um, whether or not that's representative of the broader field, um, uh, I hope that it continues to grow. I think that it needs to, I think that it will, uh, if only because 
um, because of the pressures of, of the real world disasters that are more and more um, unavoidable in our consciousness. Well, I, one thing I want to finish by saying, and that is um, for our listening audience, they should definitely go and visit the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University for more information on the work that you're doing. I use it as a resource. Uh, There's some great guidance for public schools in terms of responding to COVID-19 and considerations that they should take in terms of the possibility of opening up that uh, is really very detailed and certainly backed up by the research that you've done. Uh, which is really great to see because I know a lot of schools are really, have, I mean, you know, the uh, superintendents of school districts have been challenged uh, this year with, you know, how do I handle this? I'm not an epidemiologist. You know, some of them don't really have a budget to go and find someone to do that. They rely on the state or the county to do that. And it's been a challenging situation. So having a resource like that is great. And there are many other uh, resources and uh, research studies that you put out there. So I, I encourage my audience to do that. I also encourage them to pick up the book, uh, Rethinking Readiness, A Brief Guide to 21st Century Mega Disasters. It's, it's, I think, a very informative, very well-researched book. And I can say that, you know, in, in my, th when I do the, re when, I, when I've gone through and looked at a number of different researchers who've written books in the past couple of years, you know, Kathleen Tierney, uh, Lori Peak, and Daniel Aldrich, a few others out there, uh, this is all informs my view of things, because I, you know, the work that I do. Jeff, I want to thank you very much for joining the podcast. It was really a great pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely, my pleasure. Always great to connect. And uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. I, re I really enjoyed the conversation. So we spoke with Jeff Schlegelmilch, who is the director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. You may find out more information at www dot pinnacle performance management all one word dot com at riding the wave we like to get your feedback and you may contact me directly at my email address andrew at pinnacle performance management one word dot com thanks for listening and come back soon for our next podcast you've been listening to riding the wave hosted by andrew boyarski president of pinnacle performance management and Clinical Associate Professor in Emergency and Project Management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.